Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, uh, I want to encourage you to, to stay for the shepherds and hear what God is doing through their ministry. Such an amazing testimony to God's grace and goodness. Also want to encourage you, um, they'll be sharing a little bit. They're uh, raising funds uh, to have a place to stay while they're in Bangladesh. Uh, and they're um, a little more than halfway there, but the missions committee will be giving towards that. And they need some more funds for that trip. So if you'd like to give to that, just uh, in, the bene- or in the little envelope in front of you, just mark Shepherd's Missions. Or you can give online and designate toward missions designated and write Shepherd's. So I just want to encourage you in that. So we've been uh, preaching through the parables of Matthew 13, uh, looking at the kingdom of heaven. And three weeks ago, we preached on the parable of the weeds. And when Jesus explained this parable, he said, as the weeds, the people of the evil one are pulled up and burned in the fire. So it will be at the end of age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where the weeping, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, the people of the kingdom, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Three weeks ago, we mentioned as we read that, that there was going to be another parable coming up that was pretty much the same exact point. And that's where we land today. It's the parable of the net. Verse 47, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full... The fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In both parables, Jesus is talking about the end times when God will separate the wicked from the righteous. The righteous to eternal blessing and the wicked to eternal punishment in a place we call hell. And that's where we come today. A fun message. It's not a fun message. When you look at our culture, 74% of people believe in God, but 59% of people believe in hell. And I was actually kind of surprised that the number was so high, judging by the people I talk to and even judging by the funerals that I attend. If you ever go to a funeral, it seems that no matter what kind of life the person lived, everybody's certain that they'll be in heaven. One funeral I was asked to preach, the family members talked about how despicable of a man the guy was. How he was mean to everybody, how he had ruined all the relationships with his family and friends, how he was just a, a, just a horrible person. And they described all this, and I'm like, how am I going to preach this sermon as they're describing all this? And then they said, but we know he's in heaven. And that thought just, just really, it, it made me weep. That they were like, this is, we just know, just no matter what, Everybody goes there. And as I thought about that, and as I prepared the message for that funeral, it was one of the hardest funerals I've ever had to do. And so I made sure that I didn't mention anything about the destination of that specific man, but I preached the gospel clearly, that salvation was only available through Jesus, the truth of Christianity, that salvation is by faith through grace in Christ. See, our culture has a weird relationship with hell. We throw the word around loosely in conversations. When something shocking or, or surprising happens, we say, what in the... If, when someone offends us, we tell that person where they can go. You can go to that place. 
I remember the story of an evangelism who was sharing the good news of the gospel with a biker. And the biker was so excited. And he said, do you want to accept that grace and receive free salvation today? And the biker said, blank, yes. And he's like, all right, well, good. Because it's just part of our culture's general language. Hell is prevalent in music, too. If you watch the Detroit Lions, there's something really cool that happens on third down. Last, last year, my son and I got a chance to go to a Lions game because they started three and nine, and so people sold their tickets, and we got cheap tickets. You can never get cheap tickets to football. It was the coolest thing ever. On third down, if you've ever been to a Lions game, there's these bells that ring, and there's this rock song that plays in the background. It says, third down. Everybody cheers. And actually, I looked up the decibel of how, how, how high it is, and it said, if you are in a place that has a decibel this high, you will sustain ear damage, hearing damage. But it's the coolest moment. Everybody's yelling, the whole crowd's cheering. While they're doing that, they're playing the song Hell's Bells by ACDC. I don't know if you know where those bells are from. But we, we're in a culture where people joke about hell, and they joke, well, that's where all my friends are, so I'm looking forward to going there. If you're my age or older, maybe you grew up in the day of hellfire and brimstone preachers, preachers that would pound the pulpit. And every sermon, it seemed like, was about hell. When I lived in Lowell, there was a group that would stand on the corner every Wednesday night and they would just hold these signs that you're going to hell unless you repent. And they would just stand there and yell at the crowd as they walked by. And one time I rolled my window down to hear what they were saying and and. The words that they were using, I rolled my window up quick because I had little kids in the background. I didn't know if they'd know the context of what they were trying to say. Now, it's easy for us to stand in in judgment over them and and go, you know, I don't think that those, you know, strategies are the best for our times. But at the same time, I do think that their evangelistic zeal was something that sometimes I was lacking. And I think what happens is sometimes the pendulum swings where at maybe back in the day all, all was talked about was hell. And then what happens as you move forward is then we don't even mention it by name. We swing the pendulum too far on the other side. As Christians, our response to hell is varied. Some of us just don't want to think about it. It's, it's something that's hard to think about. So what we do is we know it's there and we believe in it, but we just put it off and put it in some box so we don't have to worry about it. Maybe some others have studied it and wonder, you know, I don't really know a lot about it, but, but you know, I know the Bible teaches it. And maybe some of us have studied it and, and have a clear understanding, but at the same time, you know, it's a topic we tend to avoid. But all of us should be emotionally affected by it. If hell is a real place, which I think it is, that's the destination of those that don't know Jesus. And we have friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors who don't know Christ. It's something that should impact us. So often, we walk through this life seeking distractions from hard truths hoping to fill our lives with things that will keep us from worry and anxiety. And at some points that's good. Sometimes it's good to have distractions. But sometimes we avoid hard topics because we don't like hard answers. Hell is one of those things. R.C. Sproul was asked, what was the doctrine that was the hardest for him? And he said, hell. And I would agree. See, there are some sermons I can't wait to preach. I come up here so excited. All week I've been waiting, excited to tell you what I saw in God's Word. 
And then there's sermons like this, where I go, God, would you just speak through me? Because these are words that, that I don't necessarily get excited to, to think about, to talk about. And the problem of pain, C.S. Lewis writes this, There's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it was in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and specifically of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and has the full support of reason. What C.S. Lewis is saying, if I could get rid of any doctrine, if I was to choose all the doctrines that I like and all the ones that I don't like, and if I could get rid of the one that I don't like, this is the one that I would get rid of. But I can't. Why can I not? Because it has the full support of God's Word. Because it has Jesus' own teaching. Jesus taught about hell 70 times, more than anywhere else in the Scriptures. And it's always been held by Christianity, and it has the full support of reason. And you might argue with him about that last point, but if you read that book and others, you'll see what he's talking about. Before the sermon, I had us read Isaiah 55, 8-9, about God's thoughts not being our thoughts. But I want to give you the context for that, because I think it's important for us to understand. If we rewind back to verse 6, the Bible says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. What is the context going on here? The Israelites were wondering how you, Lord, can have mercy on the wicked. How can you have mercy on the righteous? How can you pardon those that have done wrong things? And when God says this statement, it's interesting. What he's actually saying the statement about is the Israelites thought God should be more just. He should execute more judgment. And they're saying, why don't you act? And then he says those words that we just read. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So today we're, we're going to be talking about the topic of hell, but as we do that, I think sometimes some of us try to stand in judgment over this doctrine and say, well, I don't like this doctrine, so then we, we take it and we, we try to make it fit to how we want it to fit. And sometimes we, when we're explaining it to others, we, we act like it's something we should be ashamed about. Yeah, God is a good father and he does all those things, but just don't look into what he says about hell. When we recognize God is holy and just. In Romans 9, Paul compares God to the potter and us to the clay. So what right does the clay have to say to the potter, why did you make me this? Why did you make me for this? The clay has no right. And he says in verse 20, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? The answer is we have no right to talk back to God. And Job, who experienced the worst suffering of anybody I can imagine, he questioned God because of his suffering. And God responded, revealing his character, who he was. And after God revealed his character, Job said this, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When he came face to face with who God was, he came to this realization. God was bigger, more powerful, and greater than anything he had imagined. And he had no right to complain of his suffering. We often think if we were God, we would have a different plan. 
We do this because we believe God should be more merciful. On the flip side, sometimes we think God should execute more judgment. (coughs) The crux of this issue boils down to this. Is your view of God big enough? Is your trust in God great enough that even if there's a hard truth that you can say, I believe God is good and I trust Him. I may not fully understand. I may not fully comprehend, but I trust Him. Are you okay to say, God, I know your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways are not my ways and your ways and your thoughts are higher than the heavens are to me? Do you truly believe that? Or do you want God to conform to your sense of morality or your logic? Let's pray. God, this is such a hard topic. Lord, and yet it's truth. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, that you'll speak through it, that you'll accomplish what you want to do, that you'll move our hearts to conform to your will. Lord, I just pray that as we speak, it'll be full of grace and truth, both. Lord, that you'd say what you want to say. In your name we pray. Amen. The Bible says a lot about hell, but I only have 35 minutes, and I probably used about 10 minutes in the intro, so I'm not going to be able to answer every single question that you've ever had about hell, but we're going to look at five big questions about hell today, and my hope is in these five big questions to give you a big picture idea, and then we'll end with some challenge. First, is hell a real place? Why was hell created? What is hell like? How can a good, loving God send people to hell? And who will be in hell? First, is hell a real place? Jesus believed uh, hell was a real place. He spoke about it a lot. As I already mentioned, he taught about hell 70 different times. That's significantly more times than he spoke about heaven. And most of the biblical teaching that we have on hell was taught by Jesus. He's the righteous judge, and he spoke often about the kingdom of heaven. And in so, he also talked about what was coming. Hell was one of his motivations to save us. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul was urging the church to pray for all people, including those in authority, because this is good and pleases God, our Savior. He said, that's why I want you to pray for everybody. The leaders pray for everybody because it's good. God who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to be saved. That's why he sent his son. That's interesting about... Ten years ago, I don't know what time frame, there was this book that came out from a guy named Rob Bell, who was a pastor here in in Grand Rapids. And uh, Rob Bell's basic premise of the book, Love Wins, was this. If God wants all to be saved, then does God get what he wants? And so he took a logical argument from that one verse to basically land on universalism. His end result was he believed that eventually everybody's going to turn to Jesus and everybody's going to believe that over time that's what's going to happen. But that's not what this verse is saying. That's a wrong way to frame this verse. God has a moral will and a sovereign ordained will. And we see it in all our lives. God desires that we live holy lives, that we don't sin. God wants us to live holy lives. And yet we still sin. We do. I don't know about you, but I still sin. This is an example of God's moral will. Even though he desires that we live completely pure lives, we still have free will and a sinful nature. And we still choose sin. And God desires that all will be saved, 
But men still have free will and a sinful nature and choose to reject Jesus. But because hell is a real place and God loves us and desires that we will be saved, he didn't just sit by. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. God loves us, and so he provided a way for salvation, a way to avoid hell. So because hell is a real place, God sent his son to provide a way out. Well, why was hell created? It was created for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41 said, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, it's interesting when you look at how our culture views hell. They often view hell as existing now and, and Satan ruling from hell. And they, they picture Satan in charge of hell. But the reality is hell is where God will cast Satan and the, the demons into one day. They will be prisoners in hell. Satan won't be ruling it. He will be suffering in it. And in Revelation 21, it describes that. It says, And the devil who deceived him was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan will be thrown into hell. And then we have a description of this great white throne of judgment. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. So this book of life was opened, and then what, what is it happens then? The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So we have this great white throne judgment where everyone whose name is not written in the book of life, which is the, the, the name we, when we profess faith in Christ, where our names are written, they're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, and those that weren't are thrown into hell. It's a hard truth. Now, what is hell like? First, is it eternal or temporary? Um, There's some godly men that I highly respect, men like John Stott. You may hear me quote John Stott a lot. He's a great uh, pastor, theologian. There's others like him that believe that hell is, uh, for those that are not believers, that there's annihilationism, that people are going to go to hell and then suffer for the sins, and then they're going to be destroyed. They're just going to cease to exist. And I would, I, would love, I would love to believe that. Uh, I see theologically how they get there based on God's character. I see biblically how they get there. But when I read the scriptures, these are the words I read. Eternal fire, everlasting shame and contempt, everlasting destruction, tormented day and night forever and ever. When I read the scriptures, it seems like this is an eternal punishment. I wish I could get there exegetically but i just can't now there are people like rob bell who would argue for second chances that when people are suffering hell they can choose jesus at that point but we don't see that anywhere in the scriptures we don't see that anywhere in god's word that people are going to get a second chance now the last thing is is now when i say literal metaphorical i don't mean hell itself uh 
solid conservative Christians believe that hell is a literal place. But the question is, are the punishments described in the scriptures literal or are they metaphorical? Um, and the reason why that question comes about is because hell is described as utter darkness, but then it's described as fire. And if you know, fire creates light, so then there's no darkness when there's fire. And so the question is, are these is this literal stuff or is the Bible just using words to describe an awful experience, something none of us want to experience to describe how bad hell is? These are the words that are used in scriptures. Eternal fire, everlasting shame and content, tormented with burning sulfur, darkness, no rest day or night, everlasting destruction, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whether those are literal things or or the Bible is just using all these words to describe, this is a place you don't want to be. This is a place your friends don't want to be. This is a place your family members don't want to be. This is a place we need to preach about so that other people will not be there. See, hell is the opposite of heaven. It's a place where we're separated from God. Now, interestingly enough, I do think hell also has levels of punishment. Here's what I mean. Revelation 20, 11, 15, it says people are judged according to their deeds. And Luke 10, 12 to 14, it says it's worse for those who rejected the apostles than for those that were in Sodom. Sodom was a, a horrible uh, place, a very evil place. But Jesus is saying in judgment, it'll be worse for those that saw Jesus perform miracles, saw Jesus heal the sick, and rejected Jesus than for those in Sodom who had no idea who Jesus was. In Luke 12, 47 to 48, it talks about a servant who knew the master's will and didn't do it. And he'd be beaten with many blows. And another servant who didn't know the master's will, and he'd be beaten with just a few blows. Second Peter 2, it said, It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. So there's this idea that, that there is different levels based on what you know, based on how you respond, uh, based on how you live. Also, there's no evidence in the Scriptures for a purgatory, uh, for believers, as some other uh, some other denominations will teach that as Christians, when we die, we have to go to purgatory to pay for our sins, and then we're going to go to heaven. No, the moment we, absent from the body, present with the Lord. As believers, the moment we die, we're in God's presence. So what is hell like? Well, it's not a place you want to go. But then the big question, how can a good or loving God send people to hell? That's, you know, when I talk to people who aren't believers and if it ever comes down to this today in our culture, this isn't usually where the conversation goes. I would say 20 years ago, often this is where the conversation would go. But the question is, well, how could a good God, how could a loving God send people to hell? And I think that that question comes from a few places. First, we overemphasize certain characteristics of, or traits of God over others. Second, we downplay the gravity of sin. And third, we just genuinely care for others. First, we overemphasize certain characteristics of God. As Christians, we rightly emphasize God's love. In fact, it's interesting. God's character is love. God is love. God has wrath. God isn't wrath. God has wrath, but God is love. And so it's important for us to, to emphasize that, ca- that category. But God isn't only love. He's holy. He's set apart. He's righteous. 
He's just. He's true. In His holiness, He is completely righteous and just. And because of that righteousness, He does have wrath. And sin is a rebellion against Him. David, when he committed adultery and murder, said against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. And you read that statement and you're like, well, no, you sinned a whole, against a whole bunch of people. You let down your nation. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against <clears throat> Bathsheba. But David recognized that there's this, there's this thing where sin against other people is bad, but God is the one that he stands accountable to. God is the one, the primary one in which he wronged. So how can a loving God send people to hell? Because he's a righteous judge. He's holy. He's just. He's perfect. But the second reason we often object to a loving God sending people to hell is because we downplay the gravity of sin. We can easily understand how someone like Hitler would get sent to hell, but our coworker, who's generally a nice person, who brings us coffee in the morning and treats us well, how could God be loving and that person go to hell? Proverbs 6 talks about God's response to sin. It says this, These are six things that the Lord hates. Seven, they're detestable to Him. The Lord, because of His holiness, because of His righteousness, hates sin. It's detestable. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I'm guessing at least one of these things has fit you at some point in your life. And those are the things the Lord hates that are detestable to Him. And Isaiah 5 and Zechariah 10 and many other passages, it talks about the Lord's anger burning against the nation of Israel because of their sin. Why? Because He hates sin. The genuine attitude in our culture is that we all deserve heaven. As long as we don't do anything bad, that's where we're going to go. But the biblical teaching is actually something quite contrary. Romans 3, it says there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. When we say, I'm a good person, in reality, that's not true. We're not righteous based on anything we've done. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall short on our own, by our own actions. None of us can attain salvation because we do enough good things. And the wages of that sin that's detestable to God, the sin that God hates, the holy and righteous and separate God, that the penalty for that sin, the wages of that sin is death. So how could a good and loving God send people to hell? Because He's holy and righteous. He's just. He hates sin. Our sin separates us from God and requires a sacrifice, and the wages of sin is death. Which leads us to the last objection. We object to loving God sending people to hell because we genuinely care for others. We have family members, neighbors, friends, co-workers who don't know Jesus. The thought of them spending eternity in hell can be unbearable. As a pastor, I do a lot of funerals. And... Uh, there's a distinct difference between doing a funeral for someone who knows Jesus and someone who doesn't. It's so hard for me to do funerals for those people that don't know Jesus. 
And at one, on one sense, I'm glad to have the opportunity to preach the gospel and hope that people will hear it. On the other sense, I just mourn the loss of this person. And yet, for those that know Jesus, it's so different. Now, every situation is different. Sometimes when it's a faithful follower of Christ who's 95 and they've led a faithful life their whole life, there's a different tone. It's just rejoicing. They're, they're no longer experiencing pain and sorrow. We can rejoice that they're with Jesus. But even when tragedy strikes, one of the hardest funerals I did was for a kid in my D group. He's one of my former students, and he called me up one day, and he just really wanted to start studying the Bible more. And so he wasn't even in my church, and he joined my D group. I think he was 21, 22. Bought a new motorcycle. Took it on the road the first day. Going down the road, someone didn't see him, pulled out. There, end of his life, right there. And it was so hard. Because of his friendship, because of how, what he meant to other people, but at the same time, in the midst of that hardship, in the midst of that difficulty, as we cried out to the Lord, and as we sat in our misery and pain, We did that with hope because we knew where he was. And even though we would miss him and even though we would suffer and even though we would have just little things that would trigger memories about him, we knew that he was present with his Savior and he was in eternal bliss because he had chosen to give his life to Christ. And as Christians, that's the hardship we we face because we know people who don't know Jesus don't have that same hope. Paul said we mourn, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. As believers, when we lose someone we love, we have hope. We have something to hold on to. But for many, they don't. And so we genuinely care for others, and then it causes us to question if God could be good. So why Paul wrote in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul recognized, even though many people came to know Christ, the nation of Israel as a whole was going to reject Jesus. And in that moment, he's saying, if I could trade myself for all of them, I would, but I know it's not possible. Because of his genuine care for others, he's saying he, he knew their destination. He knew where they were headed. And so he lived a life where he went to extremes to share the gospel because he wanted to see if he could save one more. That's true love. It's that same love that should motivate us. Not motivate us to deny hell. Not motivate us to explain away hell but motivate us to share the good news. See, the gospel is good news. But the reason we call it good news is because there is bad news. There's bad news. Hell is bad news. And so the gospel counters that good news. The gospel is the fact that God created us to be in a relationship with Him. That's why all of us have a longing to find fulfillment in something because God creates for relationship and only through him can we find true satisfaction in that relationship because God creates for relationship with him. But our sins, see, they separate us from God. God is holy and just and righteous 
And our sins can't be paid for by doing enough good deeds. We can't earn our way into heaven because God is holy and righteous. And because of that, because of God's great love for us, because of His genuine care for us, He sent His Son, and paying the price for our sins, Jesus Christ died and rose again. See, God came down to sacrifice Himself. Jesus came to sacrifice Himself. And doing the cross, scorning His shame, so that He could provide a way for us. He came as our substitute. So when we go to the throne of judgment and God says, why should I let you in? We can't say, well, because I'm a good person. Because I'm not as bad as Hitler. We can say, because your son died and paid the penalty for my sin. I can't get here because any, any of my righteousness. I can't get here because of the good things I've done. I've failed. I've made mistakes. But I know Jesus died for me. See, that's the gospel. We can't do anything on our own, but Jesus came and paid the price for our sins so that everyone who trusts in Jesus alone will receive eternal life. As Ben said this morning, that if you trust, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And that life with Jesus is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not a get out of get away from hell card. That life with Jesus starts the moment you put your faith and trust in Him, and it lasts forever. Jesus doesn't doesn't just promise us a destination. He promises us a relationship and fulfillment from this day forward through all eternity. That's the good news of the gospel. So how can a loving God send people to hell? Well, because He provided a way out through His Son. And if we genuinely care for others, then we need to share it. And the last of the big questions is, who will be in hell? The simple answer is anyone who rejects Jesus as Lord. Back to the parable from today. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down in the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, unbelievers go through the great white throne judgment where they're judged for their sins. Believers instead have the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, where we receive rewards and are sent to heaven. We are saved not by our works, but by His grace. In Matthew 7, it says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Jesus is offering life. But it's only found in Him. Maybe today you have more than five questions about hell. And you probably do. And and this deserves more study. But as you study, I want to ask you this question. How are you going to frame your questions as you approach God? Because ultimately, I think our view about hell comes down to this. Is your view of God big enough? Is your trust in God great enough? Are you okay with God's answer that His ways are not your ways? That His thoughts are not your thoughts? Do you believe that His ways are higher than your ways? And His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Big picture question. Do you trust God? 
You trust God. See, I've found that when I come to doctrines that are hard, I come back to what I know is true. God is good. God is sovereign. God does good. God is love. God sent His Son to die for me. And I trust Him. We sang that song today. When we face these really difficult situations of life, we can look back at God's promises and say He's been faithful through generations. And why would He fail now? He won't. Because of who He is. Because of His character. Because He's perfect. And His love and grace. And lastly, I don't, I don't want to study a topic like this without making any applications. So two quick applications. First, be ready. This is what I mean about that. It was a Wednesday night at 9.30 that I last had a d-group with my friend. Had no idea that the next week he wouldn't be there. None of us know when our time is going to come. Could come today, could come tomorrow, it could come 75 years from now. None of us know. So the question is, when that moment comes, are you ready? When you face Jesus, the judge, will he say, go away, I never knew you? Or will he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? And the answer to that question comes down to one thing. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Have you given your life to Jesus? And if you haven't, don't leave this place today without doing it. During the last song, I'm going to be right down here. Come up. I'll pray with you. I want to lead you to the Savior today. Don't risk eternity because of your pride. Don't risk eternity because you feel like you're not ready. You never know what tomorrow holds. Don't leave this place today without knowing for certain that you're going to spend eternity with Jesus. Secondly, today was about the bad news, but we have the good news. If remember when COVID pandemic started, it was fun. All of us have lots of great memories from that time. But imagine if I had an antidote that would completely eradicate it, that nobody would ever get it, nobody would die from it, there'd be no shutdowns, there'd be nothing. If I had that antidote and I just hid it in my basement and said, I'm glad I know this. All these other people don't know I have the antidote to what they're suffering from, that I would not be a good person. We have the truth that saves people from eternal damnation. And so easily we hold on to it. We cherish it. It's good truth. And we sing about it, and we're grateful for it, but we hold on to it. The first parable in the series was the parable of the good soil. We talked about how we don't know if soil is good or not, and we just need to cast the seeds liberally. We just need to share the good news of the gospel. God is responsible for the results. We aren't responsible for the results. God is. It's so fitting that today the shepherds are here, because that's their whole job, is just casting the seed liberally and finding good soil and praying for good soil, praying that people would respond. But we have... We have a commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything the Lord has commanded us. But now we only have a commission. We have someone going with us. And surely I'm with you always to the very ends of the earth. Let's be thankful for this truth, and let's share it. Let's pray. God, you're so good. Lord, today is a hard topic, and, and, and maybe there's some people in here today that they just feel angst in their heart the moment I said that word. And maybe they're angry at me. Or, or maybe they're sorrowful for a loved one that has passed. Or maybe they're worried about their own future and they don't know where they're going to go. Whatever the emotions we're struggling with today, Lord, we thank you that you are good and we can trust you. And Lord, if there's anyone here that does not yet know you, please, Lord, have them come forward during the service, after the service, during this week. Just... Lord, don't let them leave today without knowing you and finding freedom. Lord, help us to be people that cast the seeds of liberty, that tell others about you, that share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.